Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight we have a special guest named David Morgan, and David is a pharmacist. Um, he grew up in Hyde Park, and he, and he now lives in Weymouth. And welcome, David. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Tony. Um, yeah, no, I was, I was impressed with the guests that you've had in your show, so I'm quite impressed with their past history. And I don't know a whole lot about you, but but I did hear good things about you from Gail and other people. But anyways, I'm Dave Morgan, so I'm a pharmacist. I graduated from pharmacy school around 1978, grew up in Hyde Park. I purchased my first pharmacy in 1980 in Hyde Park in a medical building. Um, and then uh, around 1990, um, I took over the outpatient pharmacy at then Boston City Hospital and ran it. Um, they had outsourced it in that we were the successful bidder. And I ran that for about 14, 15 years. Uh, once the hospitals merged, um, they kind of unprivatized it. So it became Boston Medical Center and I managed it for them for a couple of years. And then uh, in the meantime too, I had a home infusion business and home medical equipment. And I also owned the outpatient pharmacy at Beth Israel Hospital. Then they, they merged with the Deaconess and then the same same type of thing happened. And so I kind of got out of the pharmacy world around 2004, going on almost 20 years ago. Kind of retired for a little while, got married, had twins. Um, and then I went to uh, Boston University Knights and became a financial planner. So I've been doing that for, um, for the last 15 years. Uh, but I kind of got dragged back. I'm not sure if the dragged would be the right term. I got kind of involved in this whole um, substance abuse world, kind of going back probably about 15 years when in Weymouth at that time, they sent a flyer in um, the water bills and it came and it talked about the, you know, the uh, dangers of prescription pills and that you should get rid of them and throw them out. And, uh, some of the other, you know, kind of warning about the, the dangers of some prescriptions. And so I thought it was kind of weird that the water department was trying to educate the community about the dangers of prescription drugs. So I kind of contacted the mayor's office and there was a, and she put me in touch with um, Lynn Frano, who was the substance use coordinator at the time. They had gotten a federal DFC grant, which is, stands for drug-free communities. So I get, and the reason it was set in the water bills it was just an easy way to inexpensive way to to get a mailing to the community so i kind of got involved in it back then but going back to um the opioid crisis um oxycontin came on the market in 1996 1997 and we had it in our pharmacies and i really didn't think much of it i thought it was kind of crazy that the you know i didn't even think would sell any of it um, they had a they had a 160 milligram tablet, which was 32 Percocets in one tablet, which to me didn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, fast forward a couple of years, um, robberies, armed robberies in pharmacies in Massachusetts went from zero to about 150 a year. And it was all due to Oxycontin. And that, um, um, so that was crazy. And then I looked at you know, some of the, I read a report and seeing some of the people that were selling a lot of Oxycontin, surprisingly, in, in my stores, and that most of the people, they weren't hospice patients, because we service a lot of hospices, and they didn't use it because it was too expensive. But um, most of the people were younger people, and that didn't make sense to me. The more I looked into it, I said, you know, this doesn't really seem right, that and that the street price of it was a dollar milligram. So like an 80 milligram tablet would sell for $80 and you multiply that by 60 tablets. You're talking like $5,000 a month street price of something prescription. So at that time, I kind of approached the medical director. And I said, you know, we really shouldn't have this drug uh, on formula. It's just too expensive. It's too concentrated. It's too dangerous. 
And I don't want to put my employees in harm's way by, you know, subjecting them to armed robbery. So it took a while, but we brought it to the medical um, pharmacy uh, committee. Um, so eventually we removed it from the pharmacies. And it was um, actually the day before 9-11, which was so it was it was September 10th, um, 2001. And that was kind of the end of it for me. Um, they removed it from pharmacies and I was done with it. And I didn't get very much pushback, but I did get a lot of pushback from the drug company. And, um, you know, the board of pharmacy says, well, you really should carry it. And I said, no, I'm not going to carry it. And blah, blah, blah. It was a lot of back and forth. And I kind of held my ground. But anyway, so I... And that's why when I, you know, I talked to Dan Schneider about this, because we kind of started our own little um, um, crusades about yeah. the same time. But in to Dan let Schneider, people know, Dan, Dan Schneider is the guy who is the pharmacist in the Netflix series. Series, so right. They, so they knew that. And now, by the way, that drug company that gave you pushback, was that Purdue Pharma? Yes, it was. Okay. So that kind of was the end of me. So I removed it not because I you know, saw that would end up killing hundreds of thousands of people. I removed it mainly for the safety of my employees. Plus it was too expensive. And I just didn't make sense to me that um, that higher dose really didn't make sense, especially in young people with back problems and work injuries, and things like that. So that was almost 22 years ago. So, you know, and back then too, the amount of overdose deaths was somewhere around, I don't know, somewhere around 12,000. Um, so as you know, they've escalated to now around 110,000 in Massachusetts, just research figures. It's the highest at like 2,300, the highest ever. So, uh, so anyways, that was kind of how I got involved in it. And I worked on numerous grants over the years and I'm working on a, uh, you know, I work on the substance abuse committee in Weymouth and also with Boston Medical Center as a HEAL grant, which is, um, Help, helping end uh, addiction long-term. So the goal was to decrease overdose deaths by 40%. So, uh, so that's kind of my story And that, you know, so a lot of things have changed. So um, the amount of opiate prescriptions is down significantly. I think it's down at least 40% across the country. So, so um, but deaths keep going up. So people couldn't say, oh, look at that, that didn't really help. And, and so what's driving it now, it's, it's a toxic, illicit drug supply. I mean, there's fentanyl. There's no more heroin on the streets. It's all fentanyl and mixed with xylazine and a bunch of other things. So that's what's killing young, killing people. Um, and I don't really have any answers to that. But but I think most of the pill mills, like the one that was highlighted in um, in the Netflix series, I think most of those are out of business. We did have some of them around uh, New England, like Joanne Peterson went up, you know, to Dr. John McCabe, and there's been others around. So most of the pill mills, for the most part, have gone away. But I still think there's some overprescribing, meaning not, not so much very high doses of opiates, but um, but a combination of um you know, opiates with, with benzodiazepines like Xanax and Clonopin and and other, you know, sleeping pills and um, muscle relaxants like Flexero and um, gabapentin. It, it, you know, so it's the combination of drugs, I think, is, is putting people at risk. And that in combining that with alcohol, which is probably, you know, the most deadly and abused drug in this country, you know, we're still in a crisis mode. And I don't, you know, and I, what I, I did an event last week with Dan Schneider, and he's been a very good friend of mine that I reached out to him a couple of years ago, and we think a lot alike. But, you know, we don't just have an opiate crisis. We have an addiction crisis. That means people get addicted to substances. And the reason they get addicted is, I think, in the mind's part, is they, it's a mental health crisis, that they don't like the way they feel, so they take a substance to feel different or feel better. Um, and that usually doesn't work. Um, so, and then as Andrew Claude and I, and, and I agree with them on a point, is that, you know, the opioids, you know, the Vicodins and the oxycodones and stuff have never been proven to be safe and effective for chronic pain. So, you know, there's some figures saying there's 100 million people in this country that have chronic pain. 
So how do you treat them effectively? And those are questions they're very difficult to answer. Um, but so getting back to, I think we have an addiction crisis. So how do you fix that? I don't know. But what you have to do is teach people early and often that, um, you know, substances aren't the way to solve problems and that, um, um, in prescription drugs certainly on or illicit drugs certainly on and that you know we have to get people more on the prevention side get getting them not addicted in the first place and not being dependent on substances in the first place would be an effective strategy if we could figure out how to do it because once people are of a substance use disorder it's often very difficult to treat. Now we do have lots of treatments, you know, and especially we have effective treatments, especially with opiates, we have buprenorphine, we have um, uh, and methadone. Um, and for alcohol, there's some medications too that are, are, are somewhat effective. Um, but treatment and then benzodiazepines, we don't really have a good treatment for that. And to taper people down off of these, it takes a long time and a lot of effort and a lot of, you know, shared decision-making between the prescribers and the, the patient. So, uh, so that's kind of, you know, my thoughts on it that I, in that, you know, we focused a lot on the supply side. I mean, and, you know, if we put all the drug deals in prison or if we, you know, build a huge wall on the Mexican border, that all our problems would be solved. And so that really hasn't worked. I mean, if you, if you cut down one supply, as we've seen with the prescription drugs, you've cut that down somewhat, but then the illicit drug supply just increases. So it's like a balloon. You squeeze it one place, it pops out another. So just, just focusing on that. So we have to figure out a way to focus on the demand side. Why do people want all these medications? Why do we? Why is there such a demand for illicit drugs, in legal and illegal drugs in this country? And that's the part that I think we need to focus on and teach people, young people early enough. And I'm not sure what the right age is, but, um, um, and then the other thing we have to focus on and focus on the people that are better. The people do get better. And there's no one single answer. Like, you know, the, the, some of the medications work great for some people. Um, some of the 12-step meetings, or the, you know, the, such as NA and A work great for some people. And Smart Recovery is another one that works for some people. But I think it will take a combination that people might need to do more than one thing. That one single thing doesn't work. Um, so anyways, that's my kind of my thoughts and i don't really have any answers i've seen the problem for the last 25 years um and we've always had a drug problem but it exploded with oxycontin and mainly because the 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 company told us a bunch of lies you know uh, the general public and the prescribers and the pharmacies that you know th these you can't get addicted to this and that there's no upper dose and that if the pain, if it's not working, just increase the dose. Well, that was just pure lies, and they've proven to be lies. And so, why did we put up with that many lies? And then, and then other people got involved, like Joint Commission on Accreditation of Hospitals. They told you, "Oh, you have to treat pain. Everybody's in pain. You got to ask them ten times a day, how's your pain?" And then the VA also had a program that promoted it, and a whole host of people and the boards of medicine, the boards of pharmacy, they all got on the bandwagon and feeding these lies to us. So I think we know now that we were lied to, but how do we undo the harm that was done? I really don't know. So that's um, my story, Tony. I'd like to see if you have any insights and you've been involved in this from many, many years also um, with fed up and others. Um, I have in the, uh... The big thing is, you know, uh, the Sackler family, which owned Purdue Pharma, uh, they were the big time creator of the problem, yep. as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Uh, my son was a um, patient at the Milton Hospital, and his first prescription was for 100 oxycodones, take three or four a day as needed. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty vague yep. now that I know better, you know. But um, one of the ways to help treat it is a, a bill that's before the House in Massachusetts is to, the parent has to be notified if it's a highly addictive opioid. I got the prescription, had no idea what I was, what the, what the pills were, 
never heard of an opioid, never heard of oxycodone or oxycontin, mm -hmm. went down to the drugstore and filled it. So the pharmacist didn't advise me and the doctor didn't advise me that yep. this was a highly addictive opioid. And at the time, I don't think the doctor thought it was. I think right. he thought it was the miracle drug. Right. Because he'd been listening to all the, all the, <clears throat> all the pieces, you know, he'd been reading all those flyers and yep. pamphlets that the, um, uh, that the Purdue Pharma people were pushing out and the sales reps. Yep. Now, did, did the sales reps call on you or did they mostly call on the doctors? Uh, most of the doctors, they called on me, but for a variety of reasons, since I had at the time really four pharmacies. So I didn't really meet with them in that. Um, so they'd call on me, but I didn't really, I didn't really see any, I don't know, if, I don't know what the right word is, but I didn't really see any value in them because I don't, you know, most of them, you know, some of the drug companies used to hire pharmacists as sales reps, you know, like Eli Lilly did that at the beginning, but in general, most of them didn't. So there were salespeople. So I didn't feel like I should be educated by, you know, somebody that's just, you know, a sales type person. So I didn't really meet them, but they did call on my pharmacies. And I, I didn't know this until after I stopped selling it, that, you know, one of the stores that were bringing, you know, cookies and donuts and, and they were quite upset that I removed it. Um, you tell, I, you're telling us that they brought cookies and other things to the, yeah, to the drugstore now. And that the pharmacists that worked for me said, you know, the sales reps really want to meet with you. And, the, you know, I'd get calls saying, you know, we want to, you know, the sales manager wants to meet with you. And that I said, I don't really, I don't see any value. I mean, you know, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. And I just think I'm not going to carry a drug. It's just too dangerous to have in my stores. And that was kind of the end of it. And it, and it kind of, I don't know if it came to, anyway, they, they, called my house and they got my wife once and, and they said, how did you get in my number wasn't listed or anything. It's not like anything to hide. I mean, back those days, it actually was phone books. I mean, you could call information and get. Sure. So she told them, will you leave him alone and stop calling him? So um, the board of pharmacy brought me in front of them and, and I gave my side of the story and in that, um, but they had doctors at the hearing and at the board of pharmacy speaking out against me and that basically I was just a pharmacist and I should just be doing what doctors, you know, why am I making medical decisions? I should be just doing what doctors tell me, tell, tell me to do. And I said, well, we have a corresponding responsibility and I don't agree with that. But fast forward 15 years, um, now Governor Healy was involved in Interclaude and I connected me with her and we worked, you know, behind the scenes on the, for the SACLA thing. And the doctors and the people that they had testifying against me were on their payroll. I had no idea, no idea that that, was, that had happened. I mean, you know, they had the American Cancer Society. They had, you know, the Hospice Federation. They had all these people that I'm sure they were being paid to, you know, trying to, you know, make me look like an idiot, which, you know, I don't think I was. And I still don't think I'm an idiot, but... Um, so that was it. I mean, I, you know, they they had a rule that you had to carry it. I kind of ignored it. And then they rescinded the rule about a year later. But I'm not as brave as like Dan Schneider. Is. I mean, he did above and beyond, you know, his bravery and stuff like that. But um, but again, I didn't foresee how bad it would become. I just saw it that was, you know, didn't make sense to me. Um, and it was, you know, fueled by... You know, this this drug that they didn't invent, Purdue Pharma, it was invented in like 1906. So it cost them nothing. And they, they made billions and billions of dollars selling it because it cost them nothing to produce. They did no research. They did nothing. They just put a little, they said it was long acting. All they did was add a little methyl cellulose. If you look that up, that's called wood pulp. So it makes a little gel in your stomach and delays the, the onset. But, you know, and then you, one of the issues too is that we didn't know back then too, is if you crushed it, you get in more of an immediate effect and more potentially dangerous. But then Purdue Farmer and their wisdom that trying to save the world, they say, oh, we'll, we'll fix that problem. We'll create a coating that you can't crush it and makes it, you know, you, you, you can't snort it. Well, they didn't do it because 
out of the goodness of their heart. They did that so that they could extend their patent. The patent had ended on their Oxycontin around 2013, 14. So by putting that special, you know, reformulating it, they basically extended their patent for another 15 years. And that was purely evil. And then they went around to all the governments in the country saying, oh, you should demand that they have to have these diffuse deterrent formulations and don't pay for anything else. And they're the, they're the only ones with an abuse deterrent formulation. And that was all big pack of lies that a lot of states, including Massachusetts, fell for. Um, so anyways, the drug's still in the market. My what I thought back in 2001, they should have just removed that drug from the market, period, the end, and we would be a lot better off. We had Percocet, we had oxycodone, five milligram back then, and that um, that worked. You know, some people would have to take, you know, multiple tablets a day, two or three tablets, you know, four or five times a day. But for people with pain, you know, convenience isn't important. Like for blood pressure pills, you don't want to take a pill four times a day. Um, so drug companies come out with once a day pills, but you don't need that for the pain medicines, I don't think. And then the other lie that they were telling people is that you have to keep ahead of the pain. So you have to take it around the clock. So it has to be long acting. Other than that, you're going to run into problems and you're going to need more because you're going to. So that was a lie too, because, you know, some people just needed it like once a day, like just to sleep at night. They didn't need it 24 hours a day. They didn't need to be, you know, completely, you know, duped by opioids 24 hours a day. So, but it just fed into that the more, the, the higher the dose, the more pills you got into them and telling them people they had to take it around the clock or else they'd run into trouble, blah, 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 was another lie. And then just, you know, so the, the drug's still in the market. It shouldn't be, uh, they're in bankruptcy. And now they're trying to force the government to take over the drug company and let the government take the profits. That makes no sense to me either. So I'm not sure well, where it stands they're, today. They're trying. They're trying to use their future profits to pay their back right. back bills for for right. the bankruptcy and for all the money that they've for damages and everything that they've caused around the world. Correct. Um, <clears throat> so one thing I've never found out: how much does how much profit there actually is in a prescription? So let because I I noticed I'm on Medicare and I and um, I see. I see how much Medicare pays for certain pills. And then I see what the, um, it, some pills, it seems like it's almost no profit in it at all. Right. And this, they, they, they're not very expensive, but maybe when they charge an insurance company, as opposed to Medicare, they, they double the cost. But what about actually Oxycontin, Oxycontin? Can you tell me what the, like for a, uh, a 40 milligram pill, how much how much was the actual cost to a pharmacy? Um, it was expensive. So I don't have the costs with me now, but I remember I did do some talks to physician groups. I had slides, and this goes back to uh, around 2002, I did it for Tuss Health Plan. And I did have slides on what each pill cost the pharmacies. And so um, it, it wasn't cheap, okay? So pharmacies, you know... It, so let, I'll just take a hypothetical. So say a 40 milligram tablet. So we know the street price was kind of $40, okay, yeah. per tablet. The cost of the pharmacy, I think, was, um, I don't know, I'm just guessing, like $2, okay? And the pharmacy might sell for $2.30 or $2.50, you know, somewhere in, you know, they'd make like a 20% gross profit and net profit probably 0 or 5%. So there was a big spread between the street price and what it cost the pharmacy, but it was still, it wasn't cheap for the pharmacies and the 80 milligram tablets were costing, I don't know. So a bottle of 60 was like, I don't know, $800. It was pretty expensive for the, you know, the, the pills. Okay. It wasn't. Now how much, I'm trying to figure out how much did Purdue Pharma end okay. up with. So anyways, on this slide and then probably, so that pill that the, say the pharmacy was in um, um, $2 for, the bottle that the prescription came in probably cost more than the pills. So I estimated because I could I could source out what a kilogram of oxycodone powder cost, and it came to around three cents per tablet. So everything they were selling was pure profit. They were making ninety eight percent gross profit, 
And so the cost of goods was less, it was about 2%. Okay, so it was all, that's what I mean, it was wildly profitable. They had no research and development. They had huge, they paid their drug reps big bucks. So they had huge, you know, sales expenses, but that was, you know, the sales side. So it wasn't, it didn't cost them much. Um, so, you know, pharmacies were, were making a, a profit, but they weren't making, you know, they're making fair profits. The pharmacy wasn't, but Purdue was making. Purdue was making ninety-eight percent margin. Right, right, right. That's what it's a big saw, so. discrepancy too. Now, I mean, you know, and the, you know, brand name drugs are expensive. Generic drugs are ridiculously inexpensive, like all the statins and stuff like that. Like Lipitor used to be the most expensive and the most widely prescribed drug in the country um, for cholesterol. Now it's generic and it's pennies. So. Um, once drugs lose their patent, and the patent runs usually anywhere from I don't know, 18 to 23 years, you know, the price drops like 95%. Um, but on the, you know, to be fair, drug companies need to make money on their discoveries because, you know, for every one hit, they have like, you know, 100 misses. So, I mean, research and development is expensive, you know. Drug price in this country is where, you know, it's, it's that's another whole issue for another whole day that we've never solved. Other than we pay more for drugs in this country than any place in the world. We also consume 95% of the opiates in the whole world. Like we have a country, a country that's addicted to pain pills where for a variety of reasons, I don't really know why. I know in Mexico, you know, where... They don't have the same drug problem we have. They ex ex they export all their drugs to us, but you know, in in Europe and stuff like that, they didn't have you know they had heroin and stuff like that, but they didn't have the overprescribing of the opiates. Like we had ninety, we sold ninety five percent of the Vicodin in this country. One of the things Andrew Claudine did, kind of behind the scenes, which was I I and I agreed with them, applied um, Vicodin back then was a schedule three drug, meaning you get five refills on it. So, so a doctor could write a prescription for 120 Vicodin, you know, with five refills. So it became a schedule two. So it cut out all the refills. So that alone cut back on a lot of the prescriptions. Um, um, but one of the things you mentioned about the the bill, I'm not a, about the educating the parents. So I guess that's okay. I think a lot of parents nowadays hopefully know the dangers of opiate pills, but that only affects people under 18. Once somebody's 18, parents really aren't involved in the healthcare and they can't really get involved. Um, right. So you can't really warn them without the, the, the 18 year old signing off saying, you can talk to my parents. So, um, but one thing you could think of though, too, is that they have to be aware, like, um, so like for dental pain and stuff like that, most dental pain, could, you know, if it's an inflammatory disease, I mean, inflammatory type of thing, tooth extraction and stuff, it, it Tylenol and ibuprofen works just as good. Okay. It's been proven as effective, if not more effective than opiates. Now, when wisdom teeth are removed, that's, you know, more, more major surgery. So when my kids had them, you know, they did get a small quantity of oxycodone, but since I know my wife knows the dangers of it, we controlled it. We didn't give them the bottom of the, I think they only got like 10 pills. We didn't give them the bottle of 10. We didn't, you know, take one at bedtime. So they ended up using two or three. Um, so the doctors, I think, aren't prescribing the big coins they used to. Hopefully they're not, at least the doctors I know don't do it. So, uh, so that's where, and that's what the problem is. They, oh, people need pain medication. I said, yeah, absolutely. Especially in the hospital and stuff like that. You know, you, after major surgery, opiates, you need it. You need it. I mean, you just, that's just a given. The problem that arose is when you give people large quantities to go home. And so now they have the control of 100 oxycodone in the house. And I saw this with some back surgeons many years ago where routinely they would give like 90 pills. And I told them, I said, that's kind of crazy. Oh, what are you, they're going to be in pain. I said, yeah, but you give them a smaller quantity and the more you give them, the more they're going to take. I mean, if you're going to give somebody 100 pills, they're going to they say, I must need 100 pills. So they're going to consume them over a period of a month and stuff like that. So I think we've done a better job of educating prescribers. And I think a lot of parents are leery, but you left out anybody 18 and over. 
you know, how do you get to those people? And that's not. Well, that is the reason why I came up with the 18 and under first of all, because they were once they're 18, they're an adult. Right. We can't do that. But I became a bereavement facilitator. Yep. And and I was dealing with a lot of grief groups. And I would always ask the parent, how did your child get involved in opioids? And 35 percent of them at least said my kids got their wisdom teeth out and they got a prescription for Percocet or Vicodin. And that was the and they just took it once, twice and then off to the races. Yep. Because they were probably suffering from depression or something. And all of a sudden, whoa, this feels pretty good. You know, I'll do some more. And so I, I figured if nothing else, we could get that 35%. And then a lot of the other ones said they got prescribed because they were in high school. Yep. Most people in high school are 18 and under. Yep. Uh, and they got an injury playing sports. Yep. And they got the prescription while they're in the emergency room. Yep. And, and so, so I said, well, let's, let's at least stop that. Yep. If we can stop something. We have to make a little bit of a headway. Yep. Let's stop that, you know. No, I agree. I think it's a good start. And I don't see that anybody be against that. I can't imagine anybody be against it. But yeah, you've heard the story and you have more first experience, but I've heard it, you know, hundreds of times people got a sports injury. So sports are a good thing for kids to get involved with. You know, they're a protective factor and keeping busy, but also they're a risk factor. They're going to get, some of them get hurt. And that, and that, yes, they need to be warned. And, um, but I think part of the part of the thing too is probably the parents falling. You know, my son just had the wisdom teeth out, or my son just had a sports injury. They're going to need pain medicine, so it's it's the pressure back on the prescribers. You know, I think there's a little of that too. So we need to educate them that you know this is not you know the risks involved. Um, but yeah, the, the other thing too, say like in the in the um, wisdom tooth example, even if they give them a small amount, some people. Take 100 people, okay? You know, probably 30% of them, they don't even think that the pain pills work. And then 30% of the people will say, oh, they may, I don't like them. They made me feel nauseous or they made me feel dopey. I don't want to feel dopey. But then there's another significant amount of people, young kids, they'll say, wow, I love this feeling. And you're right. There's an underlying mental health issues that they're depressed or something like that. So not only it, it helps relieve the pain, it also helps relieve emotional pain and that's why they become so powerful it's the removing of the emotional pain that seems to make them more attractive and you know and that's the part that we haven't really figured out how to remove emotional pain without giving people opiates um so no i, I applaud you on that effort and you've heard it in that yeah and then hopefully that's not happening as much with like oral surgeon, especially, but I can't really verify that. I don't, I don't fill prescriptions in a pharmacy. So I don't know what the day-to-day picture looks like, but I would hope that that doesn't happen. Well, I, I actually had a few teeth extracted and, and the doctor, the dentist decided, you know, he said, Oh, here's what we do. He said, you get, we give you the boosted up version of ibuprofen. Yep. And, and then every take that, every once every um, eight hours and then on the four hours take Tylenol. Yep. That's a good way to do milligrams. it. Yeah. And mix the two like that. And, and I never, and I didn't have any issue at all. Yep. And, yep. and um, I mean, I might be the extreme because I'm really stubborn, but I, I had back surgery in the past two years and a knee replacement in the past yep. four years. And I didn't take anything. Yep. And ice and ibuprofen. I mean, they didn't want to give me ibuprofen. They said, no, because you're on a blood thinner. You know, you can't do that. Yep. And so I said, well, then don't give me that either. Just give me Tylenol. And, yep. and I, I think that, as you said, the parents sometimes, they get over anxious about right. their child being in pain. Right. And they don't want their kid to be in pain. But, you know, and, and you asked them, you know, why does this country do 95% of all the pills in the world? Yep. Because other countries like Germany, I know for a fact, you have to be 40 years old, 40 years old before you can get a prescription of opioids. Really? Yeah. Same thing in in, uh, huh. in some of the in the Southeast Asian countries. Yep. You've got to be over 40. And uh, in a couple other countries, you've got to be on your deathbed. You've got to have a terminal illness. Yep. Yep. That's the only way because that's what they originally were prescribed. That's how yep. they got onto the market yep. to begin with, saying that, you know. 
know, as a parent too, now I know that you, you never want to see kids in pain. So you, you know, you always want to advocate for them, but yeah, but um, yeah, that's, I didn't realize that about Germany, but um, no, it's interesting, but so hopefully things, I think most, hopefully that pharmacies aren't the source of the, most people's addictions, hopefully, but. Oh, they're not. They're just a, they're just yeah. a, a, the conduit to get the pills. That's all the drug, yeah. the doctor's given the prescription of the problem on that end. You know, I got pushed back from um, Purdue Pharma. I remember um, when I did talk, the real few times I talked to him, you know, I said that, you know, ibuprofen is probably just as effective, short term and stuff like that. And they'd always push back. Oh, people can't take that if they have, you know, because it causes kidney disease or causes ulcers or, you know, interacts with other medicines. And you can't give them Tylenol because that causes liver disease and stuff like that. So, yeah, every drug has some side effects, but they're certainly safer now for elderly people. And then the older I get, and you probably agree with me, Tony, elderly is 95 and above now. The older I get, I'm still going to be, I'll be middle-aged the rest of my life. But anyway, yeah. But yeah, and and older people, like that's the new older Americans as opposed to elderly. They're probably not the safest drugs to take around the clock. Uh, I you know, the NSAIDs, the ibuprofens, the Lees and Apricins. And, and Tylenol is probably not quite as effective, but it's probably safer, but might not work as well. But in that your case where the your dentist did the right thing. But in, in saying a severe case of pain, you could give people three medicines. And so you could give them like six Percocet, or six Oxycodone, not 10, and, and tell them that you might need these for a day or two. But in the meantime, take all three. So you take, you know, take the Tylenol and take the Oxycodone for the first day and with the ibuprofen, you know, rotating them. And then, but after the second day, you shouldn't need the Oxycodone. And if you have some left over, make sure you get rid of them. Um, don't leave them around the house because we've heard in the past too that that's the source of people the diversion they weren't buying them on the street they were stealing people's their parents medicine cabinets or their neighbors or their you know his stories you i'm sure you heard of them you know people going to open houses on we you know real estate open houses looking through people's medicine cabinets our contractors looking through medicine cabinets so hope, hopefully we don't have that excess supply in the community that we had maybe 20 years ago Hopefully that's gone. Most police stations have take back boxes too. Some pharmacy too. Um, but anyways, yep. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, and then as far as the the amount of people who have died from opioids, uh, the numbers are really misleading because uh, most of the cases, like they said, twenty three hundred overdoses. How many people just died because right. they were sixty or seventy years yep. of age, and they've been on large amounts of opioids and their heart just fell asleep, just yep. stopped pumping yep. and their brain went to sleep, you know? Yep. Yep. Um, See, people die in their sleep because that's the danger of the opiates is it cuts out your respiration. You, you know, you normally, your brain just, you don't have to think to breathe, you know, just always breathe. But if it knocks out the, you know, the, the, the respiratory center, you, you just don't wake up. You just fall asleep and you don't wake up. I mean, that's why that's why getting more naloxone in the community is a good thing. And I think pharmacies can play a role there. Community groups can play a role. Julian Peterson's group played a great role. Um, but but what I tell pharmacists too is that it's a unique drug in that of all the drugs you sell in a pharmacy, it actually can save a life, like instantly, where most drugs just don't work that way. But it also it's unique in that if you need the drug, by definition, you can't use it because you're unconscious. So that we have to get in the hands of the bystanders, the family members, the passersby, the first responders, the police, the fire, the pharmacist, everybody needs to have it. The people that need it are probably the least likely to, to be able to use it. So, I mean, that's a, it's kind of a unique drug. And that's why there's no downside oh, yeah. to having it everywhere other than, you know, the cost and the drug company makes money on it. But, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um I know some of the drug companies like uh, that, you know, instead of paying money in the settlement money, they're just giving free naloxone to communities. That's a way out for them. So they donated at the retail price, but it actually cost them, you know, again, pennies on, pennies, the, dollar, right. pennies on the dollar. So uh, some another question I had, I, I watched a couple of medical shows on TV and this one, the Chicago Med yep. uh, is for example, and, Every time somebody comes in from uh, off the street, 
they're always saying give them amount certain amount of fentanyl. Yep. And can you buy? Is can you actually get a prescription for fentanyl? Does a drugstore supply fentanyl for some reason or another? Yep. So fentanyl um, in pharmacies is available as as duragesic patches. So it's been around forever not forever, since the 90s, as a patch. And it's only really value in in hospice patients, people on cancer pain. And it's on a patch, um, you know, same as the, you know, scopolamine patches or the nicotine patches or other patches. So the, and so that's where it is in pharmacies. And so that's not being a divert and abused, although there are instances where people get the patches and they chew them or they, you know, extract the uh, the gel out of it and get high that way. But that's not what the, the fentanyl on the street is 99% illicit fentanyl. Um, I mean, it's coming from not from pharmacies and not from hospitals. I mean, there has been some diversion of, of um fentanyl in hospitals. There was a case a few years back where the um, technician, you know, they, they, they had all kinds of um, uh, hepatitis cases in the track back to this uh, technician who was taking fentanyl that they're using surgery and placing with saline. And he was using the fentanyl himself when he worked in multiple hospitals across the country, ended up in jail. So there's diversion in hospitals for self-use, but not diversion that's to be sold. So fentanyl is used every day. Fentanyl is a great drug. If you've had a colonoscopy, which, you know, we're in that age, we get them every once. So you probably had fentanyl. The, Fentanyl is very shot acting, meaning it 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 once it's stopped infusing it in your, your body, it kind of just disappears. Um, and so you'd wake up, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes later, and that and that it's fast acting and shot acting. So for that reason, it's really no benefit, you know, chronically for pain on the outside, because unless it's in a patch, because the patch is used every three days and stuff like that. Um so yeah, fentanyl is available not in pharmacies. It's available in hospitals, and thank God it is because it's used widely in hospitals. But it's that's not that's not what's killing Americans is not pharmaceutical fentanyl for the most part. Um, but one of the things um, so I wanted to make a point too. I'm you know we service used to service a lot of hospice when I had my pharmacies. End of life pain, cancer pain, end of life pain. People need to get all the opiates they need and want and that i've never been against that and that well, um, i have no argument there either that's yeah. that's that's what it was designed for exactly and that's what it should exactly. be if you're not going to you know what worrying about addiction with somebody yeah. who's got two weeks left to live yep absolutely you know absolutely. that's lame or even more um, than two weeks but yeah yeah so there's a big need and then certain other diseases such as sickle cell and that really nothing else seems to work although you know even then but anyway, so that that's never what I've been against. But what I'm against, and Andrew Claudine would probably agree too, is that chronic non-cancer pain, these drugs, you know, they're dangerous in that somebody with a either sports injury or somebody with like a work injury or a construction worker, you know, 20 or 30 year old, starting them on, you know, high doses of opiates for even more than a week, a certain percentage of people are going to be on it a year later, I mean, you can't get people off it. Once they're on it for a while, it's very difficult. You know, you can't really just cut people off either. You have to taper them very slowly. Or the other advantage, you know, this buprenorphine is a great drug that it works for pain too. That they in that they used to be barriers. I mean, when they first came on the market, they're afraid that people abuse that, and some people do abuse it. But for the most part, it's safer than uh, methadone, safer than oxycodone. It does work for pain, um, but there was a barrier. You could only treat 30 patients and they increased it to like 100 patients. But you always had to go through this training program. So that January of this year, they removed that barrier. Now, any doctor can write it for any reason. Uh, and there's no more there's no more barriers to it. But I think there's a lot of prescribers that probably don't feel comfortable with it. They feel comfortable writing, you know, buckets of oxycodone, but they don't feel comfortable writing it so that needs to change a little and then the other big barrier too is that methadone since the early 1970s you you couldn't get it in pharmacies you have to go to these methadone clinics or opiate treatment programs and that's a barrier for a drug that especially in this day of fentanyl it some people need that you need methadone but making people line up every day is just a crazy crazy silly system that shouldn't shouldn't be 
tolerate it. I mean, we should have ended that decades ago, and that still exists today. And during COVID, they did relax the, you know, that they could take some more home, but, you know, but I'm a firm believer it, it should have been, it, it, every pharmacy has methadone now, but they can only dispense it if it's known for pain. If, it, if somebody's addicted, they're not supposed to dispense it. And the same thing with the doctor. They can write it for pain, but they can't write it for addiction. So who's that stopping just, that? Who's stopping that from getting done the proper way? Is the pharmaceutical industry still? No, I mean, I, I know it's Senator Mark, government just a, as a government just working slow. No, I think it's the 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 providers of the methadone clinics, the opiate treatment programs. They're large for-profit companies, you know, located across the country. And so it's it would take their business model away. And they're saying it's not safe if you have, you know, give people and you know, having get it in pharmacy. But other countries, I mean, I've been to Scotland, England, so people get it in pharmacies there. That's the way it works in the rest of the world, except here. You know, Canada, they get it in pharmacies. It's just here that, you know, it's lobbying from their industry, I guess. So it's not, um, you know, I, you know, but I also think, I don't think, pharma, I don't think it belongs in every pharmacy, but certain pharmacies, they want to do it. I don't think pharmacists are saying, you know, there's a lot of stigma with in the well, all healthcare, but pharmacies also that they don't want those patients in their stores, even though they're already in their stores, but they don't want to deal with those patients. But we have to, we have Dan and I, Dan Schneider and I agree we have to somehow work on the stigma that exists in our profession. Um, um, but anyways, but I think too that you mentioned the emergency room. So I know at social hospital and stuff, I've met with the medical director there years ago and recently. I think they're not the source, at least they're, you know, they're not so source anymore that people don't get large quantities of opiates and they all get screened for, you know, for being at risk and things like that. So uh, I think most emergency rooms, hopefully, are like that, that they just don't do it. You know, some of the other things we have done in this state and across the country, you know, the prescription monitoring program, that has cut down on the, you know, the doctor shopping and the pharmacy hopping and all that stuff. So that kind of ended. So that pushes more people to the illicit drug supply, sad to say. Yeah, um, that's what that's what I say. That's, that's kind of the, it's a good approach, but a wrong approach. It's kind of a catch-22 on that one. Yeah, because if, if if they could get the regular prescription, they're not apt to get the fake pills that have the fentanyl in them. Right. So, so I mean, you know, some people somebody asked me recently, shouldn't we just legalize all drugs and get more of it? I don't think that works either. I mean, we need to cut down the demand. So just having everybody get their illegal drugs from pharmacies is that going to solve the problem? I mean, <sighs> well, Portugal did that, and and um. I think it. I think it. It's, it's something worth looking at. See how their program's going. Yeah, I, I know. Decriminalized. I don't think they have wide access to it. I think. Um, I don't know. I don't know that much about. I've never been to Portugal, so I think would. So I'm. For, I'm always for decriminalizing it. I mean, you know, putting people in jail for using drugs it doesn't make sense to me. I can't imagine why. No, you can't anybody. police your way out of it. No, because they're still addicted when you bring them in. Unless you're going to give them, yeah. I mean, we don't. Gonna... We don't jail people with diabetes for eating too much. I mean, it's the same thing. We don't. We shouldn't be jailing people because they have a disease. It's, you know, right. granted they're using an illegal drug, but you know, most. I don't know. It's not my world, law enforcement. But you know, most low-level dealers aren't making buckets of money. It's all the high-level dealers that are making the. Yeah, put some money on it. Most low level deals, I think, they use selling some and then using some. You know, and the, and the reality is, the, the the real big dealers have been Johnson and Johnson, Purdue yeah. Pharma, yeah. McKesson. Yeah. Um, you know, so the the real the the so called legitimate dealers are the ones yeah. who are really cashed in on the thing. And uh, let's paid, go back to but, but they just write a check. I mean, you know, John, you know, these are wildly profitable country, companies, so they just write a oh, check. Oh, they make everything. Right. If you walk into a drugstore and you look at one third of all the products in a drugstore from Johnson and Johnson, right, 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 and all kinds of different names you would, you know, you wouldn't think. But if you turn the right. bottle over and look at the back and see, and there were two, there were unlike Purdue. Well, Purdue Pharma is a huge company, but they just went bankrupt. With Johnson Johnson, just can't, you know, say, oh, sorry, we're going bankrupt, so they can't. We, you know, they couldn't use that way to wiggle out of it. So they paid their bill. Well, Purdue Pharma still hasn't paid any of their fines, I don't think. I don't know. No, they haven't. No. Nope. Because, they, because they're still trying to 
claim that something a way out of it. Something yeah. they're trying to do is illegal or something, and they and it's up in the it's in uh, it's under appeal or some right some form. Yeah. Uh, so let's the, go back to fentanyl yep. for a second. Yep. yep. So when when they administer it in a hospital. Yep. How do they do that? Is it is it a liquid form, a powder it's a form? It's a liquid. No, it's a liquid and it's IV only. So they when you go in for like a colonoscopy and they start an IV in your in your um in that they put it in there. And they usually add a little um like a benzodiazepine so you forget, you know, it kind of wipes out your memory too so you don't remember your colonoscopy. So the so the um um uh, the liquid form. So, is it so? Is it all the same strength, or is the strength by the quantity that you use, or is it? Um, or is it you guys? Oh, I'm not sure. The, comes in comes in vials and ampules, so I'm not sure how many different strengths it comes in. So I don't answer that. But it's in. So it's, it's it's it. You know, the thing with fentanyl too, it's dosed in micrograms, which is you know tiny tiny amounts. So, and that's why we'll never be able to stop the supply coming in. So like a I don't know. I'm trying to think, um, you know, the size, okay. Say like the size of a, say a loaf of bread of fentanyl of pure fentanyl. That's enough to kill probably, you know, thousands of people where, you know, the same, same amount of opium or something like that is probably only enough to kill two people. You know what I mean? It's so concentrated fentanyl. That's the problem that we're never going to be able to stop it being shipped in because it can be shipped in such small packages and if it's coming from China or Mexico, if it's coming, you know, it, it, you know, there's, there's thousands of trucks coming in over Mexico legally every day. So, I mean, to conceal some fentanyl in just a small quantity and to, to search everything, I think it's must be impossible. Same thing, you know, the number of packages coming in this country from China, you know, it'd be impossible. And if you order something from Amazon, you know, half the stuff's probably made in China. So, you know, stuff, that's the problem of trying to wipe out the illicit fentanyl supply because it's so concentrated in such in small packages you know um you know you could use marijuana as an example i mean the amount of marijuana you, first of all you can smell a lot easier so dogs can pick up on it a lot easier drug dogs but you know it, it's not lethal but you can't really ship in huge huge quantities of it i mean it just takes up too much space i mean you know to ship in yeah a kilo of um, marijuana takes up a, you know, well, anyway, so it's just the point I'm trying to make. Oh, I know what you're saying. It's concentrated. Yep. So the, the other part of that is um, I know somebody who was taking cocaine and they were using, uh, they, and it was laced with, with a certain amount of fentanyl. Yep. And the one thing that I heard about is that they had Narcan right there. Yep, and they gave him four different injections of Narcan. Yep, she she never came back. Yep, she because the fentanyl was so much so strong that it didn't the it didn't seem to have ha, you know didn't seem to to get him back with the normal yep. Narcan. Well, um, I don't know the exact case, but it could have been two. That was just too late. Meaning that if they didn't give it in, t in time, that she was already gone, that they were trying and, and just, you know, so that could be one explanation. It could be, it could be lice. You know, the other thing that's contaminating drug supply is xylazine. So that xylazine is an animal tranquilizer. So Narcan doesn't work on it. So it's not going to revive them. So if it's xylazine, it's not going to work. I mean, you, you should still give Narcan because usually it's not. It's usually fentanyl and xylazine, so it'll work on the fentanyl pop and not on the xylazine pop. But that's another whole, just like I'm saying, once you clamp down on one, some other new drug comes up that they have to worry about. So, um, but yeah, no, I mean, Narcan works on, Naloxone works on fentanyl. I mean, because it, it is. It does, yeah. Do you need to okay. use more? I don't know. I don't really know. I think in most part, you know, you have to, you need to give one dose and then wait a good two or three minutes before you give them the next dose. Like some people, I'm, I've heard people don't wait long enough. Um, yeah, I mean, I could see if somebody was impatient, to, if somebody huh? was if somebody was passed out and the first dose didn't work, just to 
kind of wait for two or three minutes, yep. you know, that yep. seemed yep. like a lifetime. Just, oh, no, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially if it's you a know. loved one, you know, you want to do anything. Yeah, I mean, I've um, been in issue situations where it was an emergency and I was waiting for the ambulance. Yep. And the ambulance showed up in less than five minutes. It seemed yep. like 50 minutes to me. Yep. You know? Well, that's and why I, I feel that, you know, in this part, of, especially in Weymouth and towns around, the response time to EMS is pretty good. Um, but still, even EMS providers say that they really think that everybody should have Narcan because sometimes it does take a little while to get there. And sometimes, and that's the problem with fentanyl is that it's so fast acting that it, it, it acts quicker where that um, uh, I'm not say like, if you're using, I don't know, um, heroin or other opiates where it takes a while for you, you know, you, you get groggy and then you fall. you know, it, it's a slower progression. It's not injected die where with, with the, with the problem with fentanyl, you know, you inject and die. The other, the, is, the other issue that I, I foresee might be a problem is that there's significant amount of pills and where they're coming from. I'm not sure they're not coming from pharmacies, but counterfeit pills. And you might probably heard of this, Tony. Oh yeah. I saw know. them. Yep. And so they're, they're available in our communities and that now there's a big shortage of Adderall. And so, you know, that's another whole discussion of, you know, this, we're in a, a country that uses everybody is on ADHD drugs, especially young people. And that's, partly driven by parents saying we want our kids to do better. We want to get in better schools. We want them better grades. So now you have a shortage of Adderall and all the other drugs. So are people going to go to the street to get some? I don't know, but I, we need to educate people that what you buy in the street might, you know, one pill can kill you, especially if you snort it, if it's all fentanyl. I haven't heard of anybody dying locally, but I foresee that as a potential problem. Have you heard of anybody incidences? You've heard of incidents where it's available in the community, though, right? And I've heard that, but oh, I yeah. know they died. Yeah, and yeah it, we should do that. The big thing is to the one thing we don't do when the um, when we ended the tobacco people, you know, where they yep. got their big fines and everything. Um, in different states, I would say, especially New York State, um, they did terrific commercials about the dangers of smoking. Yep. And they were really good. But I've never seen a commercial on TV in any state for saying how hazardous the use of fentanyl can be. And that's drug. a good point. Good point. Why, why, why aren't we advertising? I mean, instead of spending, we could stop spending all this wasted money. And it's part of the the uh, the Purdue Farmer case. Why aren't we taking some of that money and putting it into ads on TV? Public you know, service. Yep. No, that's a good idea. In fact, the, you know, the public service, um, I don't think they had to pay for them either. But, um, you know, young, ki young kids don't watch TV, though. They don't watch TV the way we think of TV. They watch it, everything on YouTube and everything on their phones. And their well, computers. we, we so, have to put it where they watch it. Social yeah. media. So we have to educate them the channels that, they, you know, and the means that they listen to. So I think that that's. You know, there's $50 billion in opiate settlement money that's flowing to the states. Is it going to be used effectively? I don't know. I mean, I think it needs to be used effectively. How's the best way to use it? I'm not sure. I mean, that's, that's to me, that I didn't hear that idea. That sounds reasonable to me, spending yeah. some slice of that money on that. Um, yeah, we put it on you know, TikTok. Yeah, TikTok. Yeah. I, I don't Doing know what TikTok is. Where, where all the kids are, you know. Yeah. TikTok is not an alarm clock either. I don't. I've learned that. That's about the only thing I know about TikTok. It has nothing to do with clock. But you yeah. know, what we do know that scaring kids doesn't work. Like the, you know, your brain on drugs ads. Remember those from the sixties? That scaring them doesn't work. Educating them, telling them the truth, might work. You know, it might work. Um, but just saying, don't use drugs, or just say no. That doesn't seem to work. Doesn't work. I know. Doesn't work. I don't Waste know. of time. What they, I think they should do is, as you say, talk about it intelligently. Right. And bring give it out. Right, bring give them the truth. Right. Give them the truth. Yeah. These drugs are dangerous. And then I, I remember the guy who used to do a talk show at night used to say, I, I'm, I know I'm, these are my cigarettes and I'm going to smoke as long as I want to. And then just before he died, he came back on and he said, I used to say this and now I got, Half yep. a lung and my other lung, and I'll be yep. dead by the time you probably see this commercial. Yep. You know, and then right underneath it said, you know, he died on X day, yep. you know, of lung cancer. Yep. And that that's real. 
Yep. And I think hearing it from their peers, so hearing it, so if high schoolers can hear it for somebody in their mid-20s saying, this is what happened to me. You know, I went to college, started drinking, I started using drugs, I didn't last, or I had a sports injury, I was on a football scholarship, and I ended up addicted to fentanyl. But I got better too. So we need to tell them, we need to have them educated by somebody closer to their peers. Like my kids, people aren't going to listen to me and to you, young people aren't, because we're, you know, we're just not their peers. So that we need to somehow find a message in a messenger closer to their age, something that they'll listen to. Um, right. They did a good job on cigarettes. Most kids don't smoke. But we've done a lousy job on on vaping, meaning that everybody thinks vaping safe. And then, you know, so young kids vape, but they don't smoke cigarettes. So some, yeah. something worked, but, um, well, but yeah. But anyways, it's a mental health crisis. It's an addiction crisis. It's, um, I don't have the answers. I know you don't need that, but we, you know, I plan on keeping up the fight. I'm sure you do too. That, that's what we do with this show is to keep yep. pushing the message out and many different forms we're trying to get it out there in many different forms and mm -hmm. so david i want to thank you this is tony lagrecker and this is the courage to hope till next time stay safe